One, two. Here's two. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it's onward to Liddy Pool for me Home to Liddy again Well, hello, everyone. How lucky am I to be spending yet another Thursday evening talking about my number one favorite topic in the world, John Lennon, and to be spending Thursday night with all of you. We've got such a special show tonight, two really great guys with a wonderful piece of history to share with you on the show tonight. But before I introduce them, I promised you two things last week. I told you that I would get the address for the Octopus Garden fanzine, which is one of my very, very favorite things. It is a bi-monthly publication done straight from the heart, still stapled together, articles, everybody writes their own from the heart, book reviews, stories about John, news about Paul, news about Ringo, news about George, great fanzine that comes out every other month. It's published by Tom Aguiar, and you can write to him. It's A-G-U-I-A-R at 20 Moulton, M-O-U-L-T-O-N, 20 Moulton Road in Peabody, Mass. 01960 and for $16 you will get a year subscription and the extras the photos that he sends and the extras that he sends to you always a card on your birthday are fantastic octopus's garden great fanzine second bit of business i promised and it's exciting guys the lineup for the fest for beatles fans and here it is now you know mark and carol lapidos and michelle and jessica work so hard to bring new people to the stage each year. If we had the same people coming back year after year, how dull would that be? But they really work to give us new insights into the Beatles and their world. And this year, we have some great people that we haven't heard from before. First, Bob Eubanks. And yes, I know you're thinking the newlywed show, but if you know the Beatles, you know that Bob Eubanks is the one who booked them at the Hollywood Bowl and was in charge of that entire production. And he has wonderful stories to tell about working with them for that famed Hollywood Bowl performance. Gary Wright. Yep. Dreamweaver. Wish I could sing. A member of Ringo's All-Star Band is going to be giving us his insights into Ringo today, things that have happened during the solo years. And we're so honored to have Mr. Dreamweaver himself on the stage for the fest. Jack Oliver, new name on the stage for us, and I can't wait. I'm going to have to slip away from my booth to hear him talk. Jack was the president of Apple Records from 69 to 71, and 
he hasn't had a chance to share his stories before, so I can't wait to hear what he has to say. And, of course, always welcome at any Beatles Fest, Lawrence Juber of Wings, Nancy Lee Andrews, who has those wonderful stories to tell and great photos to share about Ringo, and the one and only rocker Mark Hudson. Can't wait to see and hear Mark play again. Authors, one and only Bruce Spicer, eight books under his belt or, or 50 He's done a lot. They're all wonderful. You love Bruce. Chuck Gunderson of Some Fun Tonight, that two-volume set, which tells you about every single concert that the Beatles did in North America. Vivek Tawari of The Fifth Beatle. Robert Rodriguez, you love him. He not only did Revolver, Reinventing Rock and Roll, but the new book, Solo in the 70s. Andrew Grant Jackson, who's going to be on this show in April and talk about his new book. He did Still the Greatest about the Beatles solo songs. My buddy, Anthony Robustelli from Beatles-Arama Radio, who has a show every Sunday night at 8 p.m., He's written a great book called I Want to Tell You All About the Beatles' Music, and you definitely need to hear Anthony Robustelli talk. Smart, smart guy, knows his Beatles' music. Dave Schwenson, who wrote The Beatles at Shea Stadium and The Beatles in Cleveland, he's going to be on this show in March, so don't miss him. And then Dave Bedford of Liverpool. All of those and me, I'll be speaking three times that weekend, and hopefully, fingers, toes crossed, we'll be doing the early bird presentation on the main stage on Sunday morning, so can't wait to see you there. Great interviewers this year. Al Sussman is going to be doing a good bit of the interviewing. Our friend Susan Ryan, love Susan, so glad that she's now a part of that interview compliment, and the beloved Tom Frangione, three people I just adore, all will be working with Ken Dashow to cover the interviewing for the Fest for Beatles fans March 20th, through the 22nd. So, down to business tonight. You are going to hear from history, history on the line, because we're going to be talking with the tour manager for Elephant's Memory Band, very special guy, Ed Kleinman. Ed is savvy, street smart, interesting. He's not going to like me saying this, but he's sweet, and he really is. And a very entertaining rock and roller who had a career that spanned 1966 to 1984. Did he see rock and roll or what? He worked with the Blood, Sweat, and Tears, with Rhinoceros, with Elephant's Memory Band, as I said, and oh yeah, with a rocker known as Mr. John Lennon. Now, Ed's stories are all over the board. They are funny. Some are very funny. Some are sad. Some are just sweet stories that you wouldn't want to miss, and some are kind of haunting, and they give you chill bumps. They're found in his wonderful book called Joint Venture by Trafford Publishing. It's on Amazon.com, Joint Venture. You can either download it to Kindle or you can purchase a copy of the book, and it's great. It's a fast read, 125 pages, and tonight you're going to get to hear his rockin' tales from the author himself. He's going to take you back to the days of Murray the K and the Summer of Love in Woodstock right up to John's years in New York City. And about halfway through the show, we're going to be joined by a special guest, Gary Van Syok, the bass player for Elephant's Memory Band. So let's see if we've got Ed on the line and welcome him to the show. Ed, are you there? Hello. I am here. Can you hear me? I'm so Glad to have you here. Welcome. 
Well, welcome to everyone, and thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I love your accent. Are, are you in Philly <laughs> these days? No, I live in Baltimore, but this is the this is the Jersey City, New York accent that I refuse to lose. Oh, I make sure I go back old. to New York enough to keep it up. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, your childhood to me is magical because I grew up in a little city in Louisiana, but you lived in Jersey City, and you took the subway in, and you hung out in Greenwich Village as a child, a preteen, and, and a young teen. You were in those coffee houses when Allen Ginsberg was there and Peter Palomari, and you tell all of that in the beginning of your book. And you write this poem to your friend Nikki where you say, Rich we weren't, money we had little, but we showed them, didn't we? Who needs money? We were cool. Yeah, no, that and was that was a poem that I wrote for Nikki. Uh, sorry to say, you know, it was, it was a reason for writing that poem, and it was a poem because he committed suicide when he got his orders uh, to go to Vietnam, and uh, it's in the book on that. But that's uh, he also turned me on to a lot of music when I was a teenager in high school. I mean, jazz and stuff like that, and some folk music, and you know, dra- he's the one that dragged me into New York City. But uh, the thing was. I had already read all of Jack Kerouac's books, so I was, I was sort of a fake teenage beatnik, young teenage beatnik. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then you got a job with the Blues Project in 66, which is uh, amazing because you were really young. Tell us about that. I was 21 years old. I was friends with a, a guy from Jersey City named Don Johnson. He was a folk singer, and we had some coffee houses in Jersey City, you know, all all of 15 minutes away from the Holland Tunnel to get into New York. And one day he says to me, hey, listen, I'm done playing. Let's go over to New York. A buddy of mine has an apartment there. Let's go hang out. He's right in the middle of Greenwich Village. Sure, let's go, you know. And we got over there, and we went to Danny's house, and he was right off Bleecker Street, and Everything was happening, and at those times it was starting to become a lot of hippies were starting to come in, you know, college kids. There was a lot going on in the world. Civil rights, mm-hmm. rock and roll was changing, uh, end the war, all kinds of things were going on. We went over there, hung out. There's a little story, but I won't tell anybody that little story. You'll have to read it in the book. Helps. Yay. It had to do with the name of the book. But uh, Don says, i got to go over to this loft. i got to do some work. I said, what kind of work? He said, well, just come on over with us. So we walked a couple blocks, and we're right next door. Actually, we had to go in to where the Cafe at Go-Go is, which is a, was a local club in those days that did everything, did uh, Mort Saul, did name people. It hadn't gone rock yet. And anyway, it doesn't matter. We go up in the elevator. It opens up, and my mouth dropped. I never saw all these guitars and amps and drums set up and <laughs> organs and all of this. And I'm going, Don... What's this all about? And he said, didn't I tell you that I was tour manager for a group called The Blues Project? And I said, why? <laughs> he says, yeah, me and Danny do it. I'm tour manager. Danny's roadie. We we work and blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, we're playing a gig up uptown at one of the colleges. I don't remember which one. He said, why don't you join us? I said, where do you want me to meet you? He said, meet us right here. Well, one thing leads to another. You're with your friends. You can't help. You, you got to help to move an amp him. You just can't sit yeah. there and say, "Well, I'll wait till the show's over." You yeah, help to move it. And they kept saying, "Hey, we got a show tomorrow." And I started hanging out. And as I hung out, I started helping to move equipment. Started watching all well, the changing tubes. Yes, for those people that don't know, amps had tubes in those days. Yeah. And 
I just started hanging out, and pretty soon, you know, Al Cooper came over to me and said, what's your name? You're, I know you're a friend of Don's, and you keep helping out, and I told him who I was, and he says, you want to go to work? I see you here all the time. I said, well, I'm going from night school to day school. I'm, I don't start college for another three or four, three, three and a half months. I can work. He said, we'll yeah. give you $50 a week. We'll pay you $5 a day to eat and any other expenses if we have to stay in hotels or anything like that and come to work. And wow. I said, sure, let's go to work. I said, And then Don, of course, knew this was going on, and he walked over to me and says, I got something I got to tell you, Ed. And I said, what's that? He says, anybody asks, any place you are, just make sure you tell them you're with the band. Yeah, I love that. I'm I'm 21 years old, and this band is based out of the middle of Greenwich Village, and the world is changing, and I'm with the band, and and they're rehearsing upstairs of a popular club. First thing came to mind is, gee, I could walk outside and see a nice young lady and say, hey, you want to see the show? I'm with the band. (laughs) But I learned very quickly. Yeah, but I learned very quickly that it's, not about me it's not about anything other than the show must go on and when you're mm-hmm. working backstage those guys that are going to be on that stage everything needs to work because it's about the fans it's about the people that came to see you it's about them telling their friends i saw this great band and everything needs to work and yeah. i learned and that and you made that happen you, you really did well you make it happen, but you know you also know that if you do the job the first time right, guess what? You got all this free time without anybody in the band bothering you, and well, you're that's still true. with the band, you know. And yeah. you're still with the well, band. Now, tell us some of the things that a roadie does, because you know Neil and Al don't really. They never wrote books. No. We don't really get to hear. What are those? I especially love that job that you had to do involving symbols. Tell us about what you would do. <laughs> as as a well, then we'll get to that. As a roadie, you're dealing with the equipment, all of it. You're changing guitar yeah. strings. You're making sure there's separate guitars in case one goes down. You're changing drum heads. You're packing the equipment. You're putting it in the truck. You Make sure you got extra strings, extra amps, extra everything, because you never know what's going to go, especially if you're going out on a month gigs or, you know, even a long weekend where you're playing two or three yeah. shows in different places in the country, you just dri- and you're driving the truck. Quick story on that. I remember driving with a uh, guy, Larry Waterman, who came on board, and it was during the 1968 convention in Chicago. And here we are, shoulder-length hair. We're no. busy working. We cl- we had a show in New York City, and we had to be in Ohio for 3 o'clock set up and make sure the band, when they came in at 3 o'clock, they had sound check. We couldn't get yeah. gas. People wouldn't let us get gas because our hair was too long. Yeah, we yeah. Finally they were, were getting, We were finally, they, yeah, they, they, I, well, they were scared. We were just, you know, we're long-haired hippies, but we're working our asses off. Yeah. But yeah. that's the whole thing. You're taking the equipment in to get fixed. You're on top of it. You're making sure everything works and you're ready with duplications. Now, with the cymbal thing, I was tour manager for a band called uh, Rhinoceros. Drummer uh-huh. was uh, from Mother's Invention. A couple of guys were at a big bands in uh, Toronto. And they were a good band. We had a, we had a, a, a single called Apricot Brandy that came off the yep. album that was being played all over the place. But meanwhile, here we are. We're playing in uh, the New York, World's Fair building. <laughs> the World's Fair was over. And uh, Steppenwolf opened up for the band. And they were in there, and 
I was tour manager. I had done everything I needed to do except collect the rest of the money when it's over and then get the band, right. of course, moving and let's get on. So I was standing around watching the show when one of the cymbals broke and one of the roadies mm-hmm. ran over to me and said, we don't have a spare. That's his favorite cymbal. We've got to do something about it. I said, <laughs> what do you want to do? You know, it's not working. Come on, Billy's going to get really pissed off. I said, what's wrong? He said, it won't stay up. I said, well, hold it up. And he looked at me and said, but then how do I get the other stuff that goes? I said, all right, I'll hold it up. <laughs> and I sat under that symbol holding it up, and me and Billy Monday, we just laughed the whole thing. I mean, he thought it was the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. And I kept making faces and putting one finger in my ear going, I'm going deaf, I'm going deaf. <laughs> they were good guys to work with. They were they were wonderful people to work with. So there was always a sense of humor going around. But you well, do what you, you really had to do. do a little bit of everything, didn't you? I mean, whatever needed to be uh, done, you had to do it, right? But you, you had to do it. And But what I was learning was the business end of it, too. As a tour manager, you're dealing with the managers. And once you're on the yep. road, you're in charge. And, you know, everything from making sure that the hotel is right, making sure that the roadies do their job and they've got their equipment and they've got money to, you know, buy stuff if they need something, something breaks down, where do yep. we get something on the road, you know, there's a big deal on that. I mean, way back later on when I was managing the Stranglers, when I had my own management company, their first show in New York City, their truck got stolen. All the equipment was gone, uh, everything. And I horrible. just went to the band. Well, I went to the band, and I said, do you want to continue this tour? It's a three-month tour. And they said, yes. And I said, okay, we'll back it, and we'll work from our end to make sure that as the roadies get to a next town, they know where the stores are, that, you know, the promoters know that yeah. we've got a problem we need certain equipment and when we got all the way to california uh, i had a partner at the time it was a financial partner he came down to see them and he gave everybody a couple hundred dollars and said you guys did an incredible job you got a couple of days off go take uh you know wow. do whatever you want to do but yeah. that's the thing that's called teamwork and that's one that's of the right. things that's real important on the road or even in a hometown, whatever you got. You have no roadies, no tour manager. You're a new band working out, or you're a duo. It's teamwork, and you've got to work together to make it happen. It and is. that's real important. Well, well Al, I mean, Ed, I'm so sorry. Um, I, <laughs> I promised our listeners that I would give them a chance to call in, and a lot of people want oh. to ask you questions about your time. So I'm going to open the phone lines. So I have to answer this, huh? I have to answer these people? Yeah, 668-2641. And while we're waiting for our first caller, I was blown away by the story that you told about the time in which you had just left the Blues Project. It was summer of 67. You'd gone to work in New York City at the Cafe Agogo, and something really special happened that summer. Al Cooper came back from England and brought some friends along with him. Tell that story. I'm not too sure about the frenzy, but I know he wanted to do some work with uh, Stevie Winwood. But he came back in, and he started up Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And it was Bobby Columbia on drums, Jimmy Fielder on bass. Um, oh, who was the guitar player? Steve Katz was the guitar player. They brought yep. in home play. They were amazing. And the Cafe Gogo became their rehearsal studio. And it was amazing watching this group get together. I mean, you had four horn players. You had everybody experienced on this, and it was so tight. And I loved their first album, Father as Child to Man. I think that's it. Yeah. yeah, I think it's Father Child to Man. Uh, it was amazing watching this. 
and watching how it came together, and you know, it's like, wow, it can really. It's just, you were witnessing it's history, really. You were uh, I was witnessing rock history, and roll yeah. history. Yeah, I mean, and plus, you know, the bands were playing free concerts all over New York City, of course, on the West Coast too, you know, and any, any other places around too. And it was so much going on that it was hard to not get political and not go the route of your fans. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and everybody was doing it, and everybody was playing all over the place. I mean, you see more people doing free concerts in those days, yet they were still in the clubs. Uh, in the early days, there was no Fillmore Auditorium. I don't think that came into pass until about 67, 68. Right. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a, a Look magazine in those days did a thing called Youthquake, and <laughs> there we are. There's Blues Project playing at this good Steve Paul's scene, and I'm sitting next to the stage because there was no place for roadies to be on the side of the stage. There was none. You yeah. jumped off the front and went around the back. And so I got my picture in Look magazine. I thought that was pretty trippy. That is cool. That is cool. Well, let's have oh, I got a to I got a button 69. down. I, I, yeah, I got a button down white shirt on that they took the picture <laughs> in Look magazine. Yeah. I yeah, love it. Well, know. go to the go to summer of '69 because you were in the, the height of the hippie movement. You know, yeah, and oh, you we were, were the we road were, manager for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So, no, I was, that, I was what a roadie. I was well, I was a roadie for them during yeah. that time, and that was a little bit before '69 because by '69 I was doing some work at the Cafe Go Go, and then I went out with uh, Rhinoceros in '69. That's Woodstock time. I was with the rhinoceros at that time, but as a roadie with blood, sweat, and tears, it was just amazing. It was a, you know, it was a ten people in the band, yeah, and you got the horn players that needs. It was just so much work going on, and uh, you know, you got egos and stuff. You learn that oh, yeah. early on. Everybody's got egos, but the show must go on. So <laughs> there is a way of getting around those egos. You just go to work and do your job. You right, know, keep your head down. Keep your head down. Somebody hassles you about something. If it's broken, I'll get it fixed. Exactly, e- exactly. You so know, you were I mean, out in what you call Cosmic California, and then <laughs> you – I love that. I thought that was so great. And then you come back to Jersey City. You graduate from college, and you go back out to California. You come back to Jersey City, and then you get this legendary phone call from I get, somebody I that get a call known. from Gary. You know, yeah, I'm barely, I'm barely, that. I'm barely, I'm barely awake. I drove straight through 60 hours. I had, no, I didn't have a co-driver. I just had some woman that I knew in California that, uh, in San Francisco, that needed a ride. So she just kept me awake. You know, we drove through, and so I went to sleep. And I get this phone call from Gary. Hey, Ed. You want a job? What are you doing? I said, I just got back from California, promoted some shows out there, and I'm trying to sleep. What's up, Gary? <laughs> and he said, you, he says, do you want a job? I said, yeah, yeah, I could use a job. I, you know, what do you got? He says, I'm playing bass in this band called Elephant's Memory. And I don't remember today, and I, I think when I was writing a book, too, I don't know if I remember I've ever heard of them. But it didn't matter. I wanted, I needed to work. You know, it didn't matter. And I, I knew Gary from Pig Iron Days, and he told me Adam was with him, Adam Ippolito, and both of those guys were great guys to work for. So, hey, what do I got to lose? I go for an interview. Right. So I go into New York City, and I go into this sort of uh, – well, it wasn't a loft. It was a rehearsal studio 
sort of behind the garage. There was a you could pull a car in if, in and out, but not into the studio. But it wasn't part of a building. It was a nice rehearsal studio. It was real nice. Um, and you know, I get interviewed by everybody in the band. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the questions. I just remember the, you know when it was all over, whatever they were offering to pay at that time. I said fine. Uh, then they brought the roadies in, got a couple of roadies, a sound man. I met them. They seemed to be good. I mean, you don't know until you're working with them whether anybody right. knows what knobs to turn, you know? Yeah. But at this point, I'd already done sound. I'd done lights. I'd done the roadie stuff. There wasn't anything they were going to show me unless there was a piece of equipment that I didn't know and then teach me it, you know? Yeah. But when it was all said and done and I said, yes, I take the job, I think it was, I think it was either the sax player or Rick Frank, the drummer, that turned around. It might have even been Gary. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden they turned around and said, oh, by the way, we were, we're the backup band for John and Yoko. <laughs> so, I mean, you, can only, you can only be just so cool, you know. You can, you know, so your mouth drops open and you go, oh, and, you know, tell me a little bit about that. Well, we're this backup band. We're the local Plastic Ono band. <laughs> And you know, you just you just go to work. You go, you know, you kind of walk out of there and say, I don't believe it. I'm going to meet a Beatle. <laughs> you know, I'm, really? I'm in this thing, and you know, and it was uh, I. And I got this little story about that. I went back to the coffee house that was near my college, and one of uh-huh. my favorite professors in there. We're eating, you know, we're having coffee together. And I said, you know, I just got this job. And he said, what? And I told him, I says, this is a bit scary. I mean. We're talking about bigger venues, bigger, the bigger and bigger and bigger. And he looked at me and he said, "You were running shows here in the back room of this coffee place, putting yeah. bands in there. Think about this." I said, "Think about what? It's a numbers game. So you don't need one amp. You need three amps. You need yeah. a bigger sound system. You need more lights. You need a bigger stage. It's a bigger stage." Who cares if there's 25,000 people out there? Everything is bigger, but it's only numbers. If you can do it on a I small level. And I have, to this day, I have kept that in the back of my head. That's so true. It's yeah, only it's numbers. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, just bigger, you know? It's just bigger. It's just more people, more amps, more, more, more. So yeah, what? I love it. <laughs> now, when you met John you for the first time, I'm assuming it was pretty soon after that, and you guys were in the recording studio, was it the record plant? And I think it was, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the record plant. I went back and looked up on my book and said the record plant. <laughs> and it was that you are doing a recording actually for Yoko, right? It was Yoko's first album, and uh, there was a lot going on in there. But what I, I met John, and it was very, very nice. I thought he was going to be taller than he was. Because, you know, you only see him on television or stuff like yeah. that, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I was, I, I became very impressed with how technical he would, I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect it any other way, but how much he knew what he wanted on the recording. And then right. I realized that Yoko, well, you might not like what she did, but she knew what she wanted to sound like. She knew what she wanted to do. And she was very, you know forceful maybe i don't know to to get it down in there you yep. know so as as the tour manager you know the band played and they were always record it was always recording and i think a lot of times it started at 11 12 o'clock at night so we're all kind of you know the roadies were in there because they might have to fix something i'm there because you never know what got to be done 
Right. And there was, and then you got your hanger honors. I'll call them hanger honors. Some of them I know work for Yoke for Yoko, or they worked for John in some capacity. But I found that a woman named May Pang, who was John's assistant or both of their assistants at, at some point, right? Uh, if something needed to be done, or if there was a guitar that needed to come out of his apartment, because he was living down in the village at that time. When I'd say something to somebody else, like, we've got to get John's guitar, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. And I go, we well, could never figure out what they were busy doing. <laughs> if I said something to May, I need to get John's guitar, she was gone. Boom, I'll be back with it in a minute, you know, or 10 minutes, right. whatever it takes me to get there. She was so good at getting stuff done and keeping it together between John and Yoko and the band that, you know, we became friends and then we lost each other over the years and somewhere back in 2008 or 2009 we found each other again and we've been friends since and it is she is one wonderful person who knows how to keep her act together and keep things together and moving she's I an was, incredible incredible lady one of my favorite people and speaking of my favorite people i see that we have gary on the line let's bring him on all right this thing all right let's I, got, I got i got a story for him hey gary remember. how are you Hi, Jude. How are you? I, listen, I'm so tickled that you and I get to actually talk in person instead of via. I love Pat, but I like to talk to it's you kind in of, person. It's kind of complicated Pat. to explain what happened, wasn't it? But, uh, yeah, I agree. This is so nice. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, I just wanted to call in and say hello to you guys. Hi, Ed. How you doing? Hey, all right. How are you? And look, I could say Happy New Year in person instead of emailing you or texting you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How you doing, well, bud? Had... Good. You got the Good. one of the best road managers going right there, Jude. It's, uh, he's, he, Eddie was one of the best. See, I'm, wait, I'm waiting hey, for you Ed. to hire me again so I can do it one more time, and this time with a band that wins a Grammy. That would be nice. <laughs> Yeah. We're still trying. <laughs> hey, that's my one regret in all the whole thing that didn't never got to manage a band that won a Grammy. Got a bunch yeah, of yeah. Well, maybe you'll still have world. a shot at it. <laughs> I'm still alive and still can walk and talk at the same time. <laughs> I am well, telling you, we're still you, around. We just, we're survivors. I know. I we know. had just gotten to uh, Elephant's memory, and he was just telling us about you know meeting John Lennon that first time and his impressions of May and everything. And and Gary, when you think about that that time, what memory involving you and Ed sticks out in your mind? What do you <laughs> do you remember about those days? Well, I was just happy to get Ed on board, you know, because we had had a history together, and I knew he was a he could work under pressure, and uh, he was he was a great guy. We had, uh, uh, as Eddie put it a little earlier, we had the uh, title of his book in common, so that was a good thing going there. So uh, we had a lot of fun. It was uh, hanging at the record plant. Uh, you know, it was a nervous time for us as musicians, uh, having to uh, come in every night and and recorded and what we recorded one song a day so you had to come in and it was a finished product by seven the next morning so it was a kind of a lot of pressure in our careers at that point when i think back but uh mm-hmm. it was nice to have eddie around to sort all the other things out so we could just concentrate on the music yeah. i think i yeah. think you hired me because of the john lewis scene that we had the birthday party so i could clean up the dressing room after we had the cake fight <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy, if we start getting into those wild times like that, I'll tell you. 
<laughs> Eddie, were you around for the Hells Angels boat ride? Yes, I was. <laughs> yes, I was. It's in the book. I said, uh, I, 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 not only uh, well, who was the host of that? I just flo- I just lost his name. Oh. Sandy oh, Alexander. The, no, no, of that. But there was uh, what's his name from television, the talk guy. Um, oh. Anyway, it's a, it doesn't matter. I, f- I found that the California Angels was were a bit mellower than the New York Angels. And the New York ones we saw all the time because they used to come to the gigs when we're playing in town right, or not right. in town. And it was it was interesting. I mean, all of a sudden there's a couple hundred Hell's Angels and the band and me, and we're not part <laughs> of that, and it all worked out. A couple of people got thrown in the water, but, you know, you expect that. It was a wild time, I'll tell you. It sure was. I, Great hanging I out with Okay, somebody finished that sentence. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. One of the people that y'all both have in common is Jimmy Iovine. And, you know, I, I think that you knew what was going on with him before the years of American Idol, but when they bring him on to American mm-hmm. Idol, then everybody knows about him. But you knew him back when. In fact, I just heard somebody say Iovine, which they say on American mm-hmm. Idol, Iovine. Tell us about the person you knew back then. You want to go first, Gary? Well, I, I, if I, you can go ahead because I think Jimmy was, even though I met him at the record plant, uh, Jude, uh, he was a, just a little after me. Our time was Roy Sakala was the engineer on right. uh, the Sometime in New York City album. And by the time we got around to doing our album, it was still Roy. And then we got to do Yoko's double album uh, approximately infinite universe and that was actually jack douglas right even so i so i never really directly worked with him but uh, of course i know he came around in 1973 is when he started at the record plant and uh but probably dennis ferrante probably worked with him our good friend dennis probably probably worked with him but i know that uh got to do uh (laughs) I was in the studio there with him at some point, and it might have been later on with the Stranglers and stuff like that. But I got to, I, he was just, he was younger, but he was so, un, not intense. He just, you always get the feeling he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And oh, just yeah. recently I told somebody, I said, you know, with him getting buying a record company or whatever he did, he, you know, whatever the record company has gotten, the whole industry that he is in charge of these days, if he still has it, I'm sure he does. Uh-huh. I said to somebody, I should have stayed friends with him. I might have been running a record company by today. <laughs> <laughs> he was, well, he was a very what? nice guy. And just one thing, you know did, what Dennis he, calls him, right? What? Did you know what Dennis Ferranti calls him? No. Shoes. I don't. Shoes. <laughs> I, I know what that's about. Yeah, yeah I obviously know he had some lifts that he wore, and oh, so I, Dennis uh, always refers to him as shoes anytime he talks about him. <laughs> yeah. But he did, Gary. He did some demos for uh, everyone. He liked. I got Is that him to right? come up. I got him to come up to home when everyone was playing up there at that time, and he liked them Good enough to brought them to the studio and did some demos with them and stuff. Did some nice stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great Good guy. I always liked him. Yeah. yeah. Well, now well, you were talking about May Pang a minute ago. So, yeah. Gary, did you work with May as well? 
Oh yeah, May was around for a lot of uh, of our times there when yeah. we started in the January of '72, uh, and uh, she was our main uh, emissary, more or less, between the the Lennons and us uh, when they weren't around directly to speak to us. Uh, she would always come to our rehearsals rehearsals at Butterfly Studios and uh, give us the poop on what was going down and. Because sometimes she'd have to come and explain that John and Yoko were just out of town looking for Kyoko or something. They might, right. you know, just suddenly be gone and be in Houston or something. And it was it was kind of sporadic and kind of crazy for a while in regards to that and setting up the rehearsal studio uh, for just a little thing, national TV in a couple of weeks, no big deal, <laughs> being on yeah. Mike Douglas' show. Mike so, Douglas' uh, show, yeah. <laughs> now, May, May like is, yeah, May is a good person, and she had her act together. She was a hard sure. worker. I knew her. I, I know her more socially now, but she was a yeah. she was all about taking care of business back then, That's and she right. did a great job. And she got yeah. it done. Sweet. Very sweet person. I haven't ever talked to anyone who doesn't like May. Everybody thinks the world of her, and that's a pretty good endorsement because generally you'll find one or two people who say something bad, but everybody likes her. She's real people. Yeah. Most definitely. So so now, John, if you had to give a short caricature of the man who you said Ed had his act together, knew what he wanted in the studio. Well, what would you say? Yeah, let me, about I'd, like, John? I'd like to add something to this because what impressed me, and I know there were times, and you know, after I was gone and other people were gone, and times that he'd come up that you know he didn't have his act together. But here's here's John Lennon in New York City. Everybody in their uncle wants this guy. The government wants him out of the country. The uh, radical movement wants him to be part of the radical movement. Everybody wants him. The Hell's Angels want him. They want him. Every, I mean, just every time he turned around, it was like, oh, John's, you know, he's the New York Beatle. And how he kept his act together at all is beyond me. Yeah. I mean, I was just more impressed that he could go in the studio and do work. He could go on and do a television show. He could do any you know short movies they would do, and so whatever it was, with everything else going on, it was just I was just looking at this guy was. It's too bad he's not with us anymore. I'd love to have seen where he would have gone because to do that and then, eventually, bring up his child, you know, stay home and bring up his child is like, wow, I don't know. I don't have yeah. enough words to say for that. Yeah, it's just yeah. Ama- it was amazing. It was Gary. What, what do you think? Wow, I just uh, so many things going through my mind when I was hearing uh, Eddie what your comments were. But you know, the, John's intensity really was the most impressive thing to me. How he could just go into the studio at seven o'clock and hey, if you saw him go to the the John uh, the bathroom, John. Uh, once, maybe in twelve hours, that was it was just unbelievable. He never took his his mind out of the board and off of the speakers. Yeah. It was just uh, total. I mean, he was just so en- engrossed in in uh, exactly what he wanted to end up with. And uh, by most of the time, it ended up seven in the next morning. He had exactly what he wanted, and uh, yeah. 
he was he was intense and that professionally I learned so much about mixing and you know what tracks to add and he taught me about doubling where you record the same instrument over two or three times to have it a, be a bigger fatter sound on the record and stuff like that and he he was took a lot of time to explain to us as as uh, we weren't nearly as experienced as him so uh, he took his time with the elephants and uh, kind of prepped us for doing our own record, which followed just a couple months later. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I was just reading Tony Barrow's book today, doing some research for the John Lennon series, and I usually agree with everything that Tony says. I mean, he knew the Beatles well. He's usually right on target. But at one point he says he found – Paul to be the hard worker, but he found John to be, quote, unquote, laid back and lazy. And I thought, wow, that's not the John I know. And that's obviously not the John either one of you know either, right? I didn't see any of that. And I even, there were times there was a, a restaurant bar called Home that he would show up at and a bunch of us would hang out there at different times, you know. And you're right, I, the word intense was there and what I saw in the studio is the same as Gary as he was saying I didn't get to learn all that stuff because I wasn't in there but you knew when he came out or you know there was a reason you were in there for a minute I, you know I don't know why somebody would say he was lazy I, I don't get that and of course but, that's early I, on too I mean we're talking yeah. you know 64 and so he's getting a different time perspective maybe that's the young man as a, as opposed to the mature man but I thought man that's certainly not the work ethic that I know especially from those later days and you guys seem to confirm that uh, Gary would know more about that yeah yeah definitely not maybe that was a period when maybe he was got bored earlier on at one point they were at maybe it was you know a lot of repetitious rehearsing the same tunes for a tour and i can understand how a musician gets bored but when you're taking in your care of your own solo career like it was with uh you know john was just coming off of a hit uh on imagine so the yeah. next record was a pretty big deal so i think uh he was definitely taking care of business no doubt, no doubt. Well, Gary, we need to have you back on the show to come. And since I didn't get to really do your last interview at that time when I was on Beatles-Arama, we had to use Skype, and we couldn't do that. But now we're a telephone, so I definitely would love to have you back what on the show. What a saga that was. <laughs> well, that's great. Oh, Thank you for inviting right. me, and thanks for having me on tonight. It was fun. Thank well, you. Thank you so, so much for calling in. We sure do appreciate it. All right, Eddie, we love you, man. Hey. Love you too. Right. Give your wife a big hug for me. You we'll soon. Be get, I'm I'm in Florida until the end of February. Then I'm back up, and hopefully we can get together and uh, hear some music and on and on and on. Catch yeah, you got to come and check out the uh, the Gene Corny show. I absolutely do. Except some right. stuff on there. I will be there. We will get there. All right. Thank you. Good night, folks. Thank you. See Good you night. Happy you. New Year. Happy New Year. Well, Ed, let me ask you one thing that I didn't oh, you can think ask we could talk like. about tonight. <laughs> But I, but tell us, you have a great story. There's so many we're having to leave out. The time that you almost got to go to Woodstock, uh, the time that you worked with Murray the K at the Christmas show when you were working with the Blues Project. But you have a, a really touching story at the end of your book when you, you're working with the Blanken car and you're touring with uh, Leonard Skinner. Tell that we story. We were the same management company now. Okay, this is the same management company. 
we were the opening act for Leonard Skinner. That was the album with the fire coming out. I don't remember the name of their album, but it was a big album. It was there. Yeah. And they were going to go. We were doing a world tour. We started off, I don't know, April maybe. But it was going to it was going to go on through the summer and into, it was going to end in Hawaii. And here we are in uh, somewhere around Miami area, Fort Lauderdale, doing a, you know, 20,000 seat arena. And backstage, Cassie, um, lead singer's sister, was in tears and carrying on. And, you know, it was hard not to know what she was doing. She she did not want to get on the airplane. She Mm -hmm. was dead. All she wanted to do was go in a truck and get to the next gig. The whole story was we were going to drive to um, Baton Rouge they were going to do some either a studio or some other gig they have, and then they were going to meet us in Baton Rouge, and then we could, of course, continue the tour. We were right. we were driving. They had a private plane, and it went on, and I felt so bad for you know you know we all did. I was like, man, she's really you know going off the wall here. She doesn't want to get on. Yeah. She doesn't know why she doesn't want to get on. Right. She didn't know why. I, she just doesn't want to go. She just says, I don't like the plane. I'd just rather go in the trucks with the drivers, and it was you know probably four trucks maybe, maybe more, you know, with equipment and for both bands and all of this stuff. But, uh, mm. well, when we got there, you know, in those days you could turn the radio on. Once you got out of away from a big city, all you got was static. So we didn't have, you know, any music. And when we got into Baton Rouge, that's when they told us, the, the people at the hotel were checking in. They turned around and said, did you hear the news? I said, what news? And, um, that's when we heard that the plane crashed. Oh. And she was one of the people that died on it. Oh. Uh, a few other, a few others did. Some lived because what it was, it ran out of gas from what I understand. It ran out of fuel. So that yeah. saved a lot of people's lives that made it through there. But it was so sad to, you know, to have seen this. I mean, I don't know, and I can't make it, I give any reason why they just, somebody just didn't say, well, go in a truck, we'll see you there, you know? Right. I mean, I right. don't know any the yeah. reason. None of that, you know, popped up. But it was just, just thinking about it, and you know, I know my wife was. She was. I don't think we were married at that time, but she was calling up the management. Do they know what's going on? It was. It was just disastrous for the management company for everything, and it was. Uh, it was the saddest thing I was ever involved in. Yeah. Uh, well, one one of the said. I mean, this one I was there. You know, I mean, we knew the sure. people. We were working together. Uh, of course, the other said one was my phone call on December eighth, nineteen eighty. Right. Right. I was in. Uh, I was in London at the Portobello Hotel. I was already managing bands, and the Stranglers was one of the bands who happened to still be at it, which is kind of neat. But anyway, uh, my wife called me up. She woke me up. I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, whatever, four o'clock. I don't remember what time. It was. Right. And she told me the news, and of course I was stunned. I didn't know what yeah. to make of it. And on top of that, I had a meeting later on in the day at EMI Records, and the Beatles had everybody knew the Beatles that day. I think they had some stuff to do at EMI. Mm. And we all just took deep breaths and just kind of you know sat around like zombies. I mean, we were so sad. I mean, it was. You know, and you know, all over London. I mean, this this is going yeah. on. You know, and I'm there, and it was just the whole country was devastated. 
Yeah. Um, it's kind of, you know, when you look today and you think that in the streets of Paris, they were singing Imagine today in the streets of yeah. Paris, and they have that wonderful video of those people out there singing Imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that's our one good ending to that story is that well, John I, uh, Imagine was our wedding song, man. My wife's song oh. was our dance number. We used Imagine, and it's true. Just Imagine. But yeah. boy, was it, it, between the two of those, it was just you know thinking about it now. I'm shaking. You know, I can feel it. You know, it's just. You know, it's just, it's don't want to know anybody. I, you know, we all only live just so long, and I wish everybody happy, healthy life. I mean, I just, you know, thinking about that stuff. And to enjoy like, every day, to really treasure it, really treasure stay it. Stay positive. Well, I want to tell you, positive. I know that it sounds like there are a lot of sad stories in your book, but there are a lot of fun stories in your oh, book. There's, there are a lot of amazing, amazing stories in the book. And, and there's, there's, I want to tell everybody listening tonight that, it, it won't take you long to read this book. You can pick it up in two days. It's 125 pages, great photos, great photos, but it is a great read. It's fast-paced. You don't want to put it down. You want to know what's going to happen next. But you work with Blues Project, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Pig Iron, Elephant's Memory Band, Rhinoceros, The Stranglers. Who am I missing, Ed? John uh, John Cale. Uh, the- yeah. Jerome Braley and Mutiny, and he was the drummer for years with uh, Parliament Funkadelic. We did a couple albums on Columbia, and he's still at it. Got some new stuff coming out. Um, some odds and ends that I can't even remember. <laughs> well, it was it's great, and all the stories are there. And the thing I like, and I told you this in an email, I've interviewed a lot of people who make up stories about things that they did that I, you know, I know they didn't do because of time and place, and they stretched the truth. You tell exactly what happened, and you don't want it embellished one iota, and I really respect that. So well, tell think, people where they can ever. get Joint Venture. Sure can. Uh, joint Venture is on Amazon.com, then Amazon.co.uk, BarnesandNoble.com, and then we have JointVentureJourney.com. The book has its own website, and there's other kind of little information about the book on there. Um, it's available. It's available in soft cover, hard cover, and ebook, and all those. I places. love it. That yeah, is so cool. A, now, what about where they can follow you? You can follow me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Probably better on Facebook because uh, I play around on there once in a while. At least I answer people there. <laughs> Some days I just go through and say, I like that, I like that. Um, not too political, you know. It's it's, And I'm not one of those people that wake up in the morning and say, oh, you know, i got a cramp in my hip. I better put that on Facebook. My hip doesn't work. <laughs> now, tomorrow morning I'm getting up and do my hour and a half yoga class. So if i got any aches and pains, it's going to come after that. You, know, that you reach so a point funny. where you get, to, you get to be too old to a point where, you know, you gotta have fun. You can't, you know. If I'm, you gotta enjoy life, like you said. Well, you We're do. Only here for you whatever time. Do. You, I you hope are so. always I hope smiling. So. I can tell. I hope well, so. I, I hope so. I thank you so much for being on the program. You really, you told me a lot of things in that book that I didn't know, and I, thank you for sharing with everyone tonight this glimpse oh, into John Fellow's career and bringing Gary on too. My pleasure. Thank you so much for finding me. <laughs> you know, you're the one that found me, and I said, "Oh, gee, who is this lady?" And uh, 
I thank you so much, and I'm glad to be on your mailing list so I can come in and listen to stuff. Who knows? I might call back and say, by the way, I was there too, you know? Oh, do that. Do that. I would love <laughs> anyway, it. I would keep my fingers crossed that you'll come to a Fest for Beatles fans because they would love to hear from you there and to share where, that story. Well, you, you'll, let me, you'll let me know where they are and when they are. Yeah. You know? I'm on your mailing list now. I think that we did that today. And uh, I just thank you so much, and I thank all the people that are listening, and I hope everybody's having a grand old time and enjoying themselves. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it it so much. It is Friday tomorrow, so let everybody have a good weekend. And keep smiling. (laughs) And Jude, big hugs to you, and thanks for all. We'll be talking. Thank you. Talk to you soon, Ed. Thanks a lot. And listeners, next week, Guys, you're in for a musical treat. We don't get to play music very much on this show, but next week you're going to get a sneak of the musical performance of Tim Piper. Guys, if you haven't been living on Saturn or Jupiter, you know about Tim. He does the renowned Just Imagine tribute to John Lennon. And he does actually two Lennon shows, one with the band, the electric show that he does, and the costume change and all that. And then he does a really personal acoustic show and he'll answer questions for people in the audience in fact that's he's going to be doing both of those on joe johnson's beatles brunch cruise that's coming up february the first through the eighth well next week you're going to get to hear tim perform you're going to get to hear four of his john lennon songs and then he's going to break them down and give you the history of the songs and talk about how the songs were written and performed and so forth And then you're going to get to hear two songs off of his new LP that he's doing. It's his own LP. And it's about waking up in midlife and thinking about spending your life as a John Lennon impersonator and what that means and what his career has meant to him and what the vast amount of knowledge that he has about John Lennon says to him each and every day. It's going to be a special program with music right here next week, same time, same place, same rhyme, same space. You know all about it. So join me next Thursday night for Tim Piper. Until then, my sincere thanks to Ed Kleinman, author of Joint Venture. Get it on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Great book about the 1970s and John's solo career. And huge thanks to Gary Van Syok who was the renowned bass player for Elephant's Memory Band. And thanks to all of you for joining us for our joint venture this evening. Had a great time. Hope you did, too. All the best to you and yours. ta and shine on. <laughs>